Welcome to Aspen Happen Podcast, episode 93, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John. I'm Shim. And I'm Jerry. In this episode, we unexpectedly do a deep dive talking about CI, CD, and programming. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Back again, yeah. I was off last time, um, but no, it was a really good episode. Last, I really enjoyed kind of listening to you guys wander on, uh, chatting for a bit. So it's good. So I wanted to talk about a little bit what I've been doing at work, kind of thing, and I hope it's going to feed into our kind of first topic. So it's always kind of nice when things, when you actually do something, you actually think, oh, that's why they do it. It's like, um, obviously for me, coming from a MSP background, not actually doing, working with directly with developers and stuff, and watching things with uh, with the CI, CD pipelines of where, getting code out onto the web, you wonder why did why they kind of do this kind of thing and um you can watch and i've been watching videos about devops and stuff to kind of get it working to get code deployed to the web and like yeah when it clicks it clicks so i mentioned mentioned before we the, at work we use ado which is the azure pipelining tool which is basically just like an automation thing now brute when um Stu kind of explained it just so that you can like basically run tasks when you want to run tasks, really, isn't it? Whatever you want to automate, you can. So we were doing um, where we I was working on a project with with a third party, actually, not with our internal teams. Um, we've, we've got about 90 developers in our internal team, but we weren't working with those. It's working with a third party, and they were running. They were writing a uh, kind of a PHP website uh, front end and then the back end of it there's a, there a number of windows services and i'd basically use ado they're basically giving me the code compiled so this is already it, it was some javascript uh, php code was already compiled and they were giving me the xes for windows and it was just these are basically on windows servers and all i literally was using um are with the pipelines were was to publish these i got the people who were doing the code, committing it into a Git repository. And then I was just using a, a pipeline to basically check out that repository and then using some PowerShell script to copy that code into the right places and stop and start services, etc. But as part of that, we have kind of, my current job, we were doing a migration from our on-premise um, build agents, uh, which is basically, and they have been managed by some internal developers. So, so and one of my tasks at the moment is we're going to be migrating everything to um, ADO because the current supplier we're using for the software is um, that they're basically, you can't buy their on-premise version and you have to go to their cloud version and we want to basically we have we didn't no one in my team kind of writ the code so it's all kind of managed by some devs who don't want to really look after it and obviously we've got a devops team so why aren't the devops team doing it so we had kind of meetings with the uh, devops or with developers and it's all very confusing and we're basically a, a .NET house and I didn't understand why they were compiling code or whatever in their source code because I never had to do it before because no one's kind of said, oh, what are we doing kind of thing. So um, the, part of the process is um, the, we're, the we were using with a third party company. They totally had to basically migrate their apps 
to a function app in Azure. So it's basically just running their application, instead of running it on the Windows, running it on a serverless computer. We had basically given them a sandbox to kind of make sure it worked. But then they were, we were then was, we, we had, I need to basically automate this and kind of work it through our environments because we have our different environments that work. So I kind of like just dropped in the deep end and the, the, the third party didn't really know anything about DevOps. He's saying all they're used to is just copying XEs to servers. So I had to kind of learn Visual Studio and how, and then I understand that obviously they write all this .NET code in whatever they write it in and then we have they have to compile it and obviously they can compile it on their local machines to test it but um we obviously wanted it to be stored in the repository so we can track the changes when they commit that code it's not an exe or anything so because when you in visual studio you can compile it to test it so basically compiles their their source code in a true executable but obviously that's not reproducible because obviously different people can have different code different versions of visual studio on their machines so yeah i learned about that yeah what building is so we build the code so when they commit their code into the into our repository actually when it commits it before it actually commits it we have to we actually run some tests to compile it to make sure it compiles and if we're happy to compile, we can then commit it. And then what well, that's good. So you now got your exe files or whatever the files you need for the function app. Uh, I don't know anything about artifacts before. I don't know, guys, if you've used your artifacts. I don't know what kind of technologies you have. They, they, we then commit it. That then we then build an artifact, which is like a, which is this is the, the the compiled code. And then from there, what we were doing is that we were then automatically automating that into our, our into our dev environment so that the, so they can see their changes are are correct so and when they're happy with that code that they're happy with it in dev we kind of do this thing where they create a branch of the main of the of their development branch and then we then once that's done we can then um because we've got the artifact, we build it again, so we we know that we've got a good artifact of the uh, compiled code, and then we push that into our uh, into our testing staging environment that we can then make sure that everything works how it should work with all the other systems, and then once we're happy with that, because we've got this artifact which is kind of um, committed and we know that it, it's it's ready, um, we then can then just push that out to the production environment. I, mean, I think that. What you can do is you can, we're not doing this yet, but I guess you can like put gates in, can't you? So that when it gets into staging, if you're happy, you can get people to sign it off and then it gets um, sent to, um, oh, there's quite a bit of process in it, a manual process, but I think you can then say, right, I'm happy that this is ready to go into production kind of thing. So it just, it's just nice when you kind of, you hear all these terms and you actually get to use them and kind of put them into, into actual practice. Hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of bits to um, go into there. So, yeah, in terms of the way you're saying about the manual gates, you can actually automate them as well. So there's a process called integration testing, and essentially what that is is either spinning up an environment that tests whether that integrates with what you have 
or literally you can actually deploy it into an environment with either live traffic or, you know, um, something called feature flags where you can say, you know, certain people have this feature and it's enabled for them, but not for everyone else. And you can have that for the new version and you can say, right, traffic goes that way. We see what the failure rate is on this one, whether it's, you know, something like Prometheus, something similar, um, or, you know, whether you're using some tracing framework, you can say, right, is this passing? Is this failing? If it's failing, we roll back and then just say right that failed the integration test and this is not a valid build um you need to go back and do something with it and it just comes back as a failed build at that point so um yeah i mean at every every stage along there there's ways of you know automating every single part of it and um yeah as you say one of the main reasons for doing all this kind of thing is because rather than having a single developer working on their version and then you know another person can't because they're doing it on a different machine and all of a sudden the two versions diverge um the idea is that you have a central repository you create your code you might test it locally but then you pass it into the repository and then it's the job of the continuous integration system depending on what that is whether it's jenkins whether it's gitlab ci or you know as you say in the your devops that is the bit that then takes everyone's commits and produces a single build whether it's a ver- uh, you know it could be a tagged version it could just be you know this is the testing build we want to run for now and that's how you get the um, whole point of integration that's what it means it's bringing everything together to create that artifact as you say and that artifact is then what is taken on to be deployed so that's your continuous deployment stage so yeah it's you know as you say it's you know all the terms, um, you know, you're hearing for the first time, you're wondering, what is this all about? But when you see it actually happen for the first few times, you just go, this is actually, it, it feels a bit like, you know, magic sometimes. You just go, you know, watch these going past, you just go, oh, that's tested. Oh, it's working. Oh, it's gone to the next stage. Oh, it's deployed. Oh, brilliant. I didn't have to think about that. And you're now at the point where you're not thinking, right, I've got to FTP this to here and make it do it. It's all, it's all, you know, you've done, you've done all the work to make it so that no one has to do the work again, or at least, you know, doesn't have to do the work until something goes wrong can i just quickly check al you mentioned really early on in that that you were using ado do you mean um azure DevOps? yeah that's what they kind of call it internally ado all right so that that is just to clarify um microsoft's uh continuous integration as a service service basically no it's more than that yeah sorry that's part of the continuous integration is part of that service i do apologize yeah so Azure DevOps has only got has got uh, quite a few different features, and I've only played with a few of them. The main areas that I'm aware of are that it's got inbuilt collections of Git repositories. It's got an issue tracker, and you can also have a continuous integration system in there as well. So effectively, if you were to imagine an Azure DevOps instance is a little bit like a GitLab environment or a, a GitHub organization so you've got you can have lots of projects that live inside there you know you've got lots of issue trackings that you can do inside that as well so uh, and it's all tied into azure active directory so you've got one central authentication point and things like that you're talking about those feature flags is that like the canary i had the other word day is it canary or something canary release or something is that the same sort of thing? that that in in a sense, it can be yes. So the idea behind the canary is um, 
you know, the 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 origin of the term is, you know, the canary that's taken down the mine to find out whether, you know, there's, there's you know, a gas leak or something like that, at which point, you know, obviously the canary, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do too well. But it, the idea behind it is you have something there to go, right, this is a small amount of traffic gets sent to this let you know. Let, let's say it's a um, a Kubernetes environment or a container environment, wh- whatever it's going to be. You could say we have six containers and they're all on the same version. One version is now on the new one, and we will send you know five percent of the traffic that way, and then we will monitor it and we will find out it. You know, is there any increased error rates? Is there anything different that we weren't expecting? So, you know, you may expect differences because it's a new version and it's you know you know it might run faster or it might you know work slightly differently with the databases or or whatever it's back in it. But if you start seeing increased error rates, you just go right, okay, we need to back that off. What However, if the error rates don't increase, you can then go, right, okay, we can now promote that to 10% of traffic. There's still no errors and just keep on going. And then at that, after a while, you just go, right, the canary testing has passed. We can now roll this out fully. And the whole point is there's some bugs that, you know, as much testing as you do with all the, you know, whether you've got a dedicated QA team or whether you've got, you know, written testing frameworks, there's no testing like actually putting traffic through it. So the idea of a canary is, you know, some people unfortunately may see, you know, a few errors when they go into your web page because you, you've been chosen as the 1%, 5% or whatever that's gone to that version of the service. And then at that point, um, you know, as I say, if it goes well, it gets promoted. If it doesn't, then the canary testing's failed and then it gets rolled back to the original version. It's not only in infrastructure as code that you'll tend to see the idea of canary testing. Um, quite a lot of uh, web developers use the same thing. And they might also call it, call it A-B testing or they might call it green-blue testing. Yes. Uh, and quite often in web development, the reason why you'll be doing these kind of A-B tests or, you know, your your canary tests is actually to say we've made an assumption that this change that we've made in the web page workflow or the, the application code will result in X change, whether that's more sales or faster um, turnaround time for processing or higher retention or something like that. And by serving it to a small number of people, and and for some people, that small number might be 50% of your visitors, for example. But what they'll do is they'll they'll run that as an A-B test. So sometimes you'll come through and you'll get the old set with the old, with the feature flag switched off. And then the other margin will get the new features with the feature flag switched on. And then they'll look at the metrics of, you know, we've tested that this person A or this this sample set A has had the, f- the flag turned on and we saw a noticeable uptick in uh, sales conversions or, or whatever, or, you know, a n- noted decrease in processing time for the database requests and stuff like that. If you if you're looking at it from that perspective, the other thing that you need to start building into your application at the moment, as as Stu said, you've got integration tests, um, you might have unit tests and things like that. Um, what you'll also start have to start looking at is is adding more observability stuff into your application, whether that's greater tracing of applications through a stack or more recording of which database queries w- were executed to get to that point. You might be recording how long a particular action took into your log files somewhere you know those are the sorts of things you need to start 
if you want to start looking at this A-B testing, these, these feature flags, you need to start thinking about adding those sorts of metrics into your logging somewhere so that you can see it was beneficial to turn this thing on because thing. Yeah. I was going to say something actually when when you mentioned about that um, about the tracing it's quite interesting I'll put a link in the show notes I've been listening there's a, a YouTube channel where I've been kind of what I've been subscribed to and he's been doing some interviews with different DevOps people SREs and it's just really interesting listening to what other people how other people do stuff I mean I don't go into technical details but a lot of the things they're talking about is actually tracing the application and this has it's kind of a new word for me I'm guessing it's just tracing just means you're just looking at the logs trying to find some central information of where where you can start seeing errors because we have this quite interesting because I'm from a kind of a, an infrastructure background, as I said before. So I'm used to all the monitoring. So we've got monitoring for like low disk space and high CPUs and stuff. But obviously, when we get to things now where we're getting cloud uh, or computerless, we're running um, apps, web apps and stuff. Obviously, you, you can't stick an agent on that and then monitor it that the way, you, like the traditional way I am. So what I've been looking at is using with, with Windows or with the Azure stuff, you get a thing called Application Insights. So you can basically there's some, there's some code you can put into your into your into your application, and so it knows when it where it needs to write its logs. So I'm guessing that's kind of where they're they're kind of coming from. So we're not doing it yet, but at some point I want to be looking where we want to be more proactive when we can say to as my job role kind of um, involves. Um, that we look at these logs and kind of because we're only kind of thing at the moment is when things go wrong you, that people are coming to me to and uh, yeah and yeah if that, does that is that is that way where we're coming from the tracing kind of side of things in a sense yes there, there's a bit of an expansion on that the art one of the reasons that tracing is starting to become more and more prevalent and more popular is because I'm not going to try and date myself here, but you know, you know, 10, maybe 15 years ago, a lot of applications were what you call a monolith. So all of the application logic, all of the business logic was contained in one central application, which point if you needed logs for what that application was doing, you'd look at the logs for that application. Now we're getting into the whole idea of microservices and splitting up your responsibilities. You've now got a service that only um, serves a certain part of an API or you're only serving, um, you know, an API that's responding to certain parts of, you know, certain customers, or, you know, you may be um, a one that goes off and does some batch data or something like that, or, you know, whichever way. And the whole, the whole point behind tracing is a request now doesn't just go into the app and come out. And a request that comes from a user may go to the front end part of the app, and then it may go to the next part of the a that serves part of the API. Then it may go to the login part, and then it may come back. At, because it's going through so many services, trying to correlate them all together is quite difficult so the entire point behind tracing is um quite often after we got a trace id and that takes the request and will appends this trace id to it and then everywhere that appears in the uh, in the stack it will then say right i've seen that it's gone through this container or this application and then this 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 and this and then everything gets reported back to you know some central you know, a, a good example would be um, Honeycomb or New Relic or Datadog's one that um, also does it. But there's loads of different products that do tracing. 
And um, also, um, if you're managing the code yourself, you can actually put what they call instrumentation. So that's essentially put in sections in your code that say, when I do this, I want this action to be um, passed into our telemetry application, which, as I say, you know, would be something like Honeycomb or whatever. And it means that you can go, right, when it hit this container, this is where we saw lots of slowdown. And because the application has reported um, the database query took two seconds longer than it normally does, you can see that it was in this container doing this query kind of thing rather than just, well, I know there's a slowdown somewhere, but I don't know where it is. The, the tracing is to get down to exactly what caused your problems. And yeah, things like New Relic, Datadog, and similar, they come with their own agents. Um, and a lot of the time, they do a lot automatically. Uh, but there's something now called OTEL or um, Open Telemetry, which is going to be something where you can either enable something and automatically instrument your code, or it will, uh, you can register your own functions in your code to say, I want this to be registered and everything that this does registered and everything this function does, whether it's make a database call, whether it's respond to a web request, I want that logged as well. And then you go into central application and you can see everything together. You can see all these queries are taken um, more than usual. And you can, depending on application, you can correlate and say, right, it's only for this set of users. So it may be, you know, there's a, there's an issue with our CDN in that location or it's only when it's hitting this certain database query that we're having issues and you can start pointing at that. And it's the whole point of rather than just going, I know there's a problem, but other than I know there's high CPU and memory, it's now I can see the exact part of the code which is causing the problem. Another thing to bear in mind with all of that lot is that that may sound particularly scary, particularly if you're only talking about, you know, a small application that isn't spread across, you know, microservices. It's not, you know, you haven't got parts that are in a CDN and parts that are in a database or whatever. Even if you just look at it at the smallest kind of, you know, one part of your application, historically, you would typically run an application on maybe one or two servers, you know. You might have a primary and a secondary or, you know, to use the old parlance, a master and a slave, for example. Um, uh, what you're now tending to see is whereas before you'd kind of go, oh, that application's um, behaving really badly. We'll just throw more RAM and, you know, and CPU at it. Um, what you now tend to do is, is horizontally scale stuff. So whereas before you might have had to look at one or two hosts to see your logs for your application. If you think about it, that now you might be looking at, five, 10, 30 hosts for your logs. Whereas before you might just be able to SSH into that server or, you know, RDP into that server and start paging through your Windows logs. You're now having to pull those logs from boxes that may have only existed for a couple of hours or an hour or 30 minutes. You might have sort of, uh, in when when you haven't got a high workload, you might have two of two containers or whatever, and you might suddenly have 30 and then you might suddenly go back to two again. It's, it's kind of being able to get get at that information. Yeah, you can't get logs for something that's not there anymore unless it's already sent them somewhere. So yeah, therein, therein lies the problem compared to, I don't want to say the old way of doing things, but the traditional way, I guess, is probably the nicest way. Yeah, that's what I want to get to at some point. We're logging everything, it's just getting the time. I mean, I've been writing, we've been using New Relic um, and we pull our info from um, Azure and I've been writing dashboards for 
what we're seeing for different things on our function apps and stuff with this product I've been using, with this application I've been using so that when we have something we can go kind of, um, yeah, we, we've got the data when people, it's like, it's always this classic thing, isn't it? Where you go, developers go, oh, it's your problem, it's our problem. To understand those guys, so just, just get together and kind of fix it. I don't care whose problem it is. Yeah, I'll put a link in the, the, in the link to that. It's a Linux tutorial on things. It's a guy called Dave, and he actually works for HashiCorp. So it's actually quite interesting. What's well, but with the um so ADO was so it's on my build and test or build pipeline so what other things so I've heard Jenkins been you guys talk about it before and I know um and it's like, isn't it like the guy the Jenkins like as in the butler yes yes he is Je- Jenkins that it had an original name and it's just escaped me what the original name was it Hudson that's the one yes and it was originally I think it was a Sun project originally and then um, Oracle took over and they immediately got forked into Jenkins and now Jenkins is probably the most prevalent um, CI and kind of CD solution out there so continuous integration and continuous deployment Um, one of the older ones yes and in some ways when you use it and compare it to some of the others you see the how long it's been around but at the same time there's a lot of the industry uses it and because of that there's a lot of people have built a lot of very interesting stuff for it but yeah it's possibly the most popular open source um, continuous integration um, platform out there Um, I mean I've worked in um, so far about four or five different places that use it. Um, the, the other couple of places ago, we started the migration away to GitLab, but at the same time, I've moved to other places now, and it's back to Jenkins again. So again, it's it's one of those things. If you're in this industry, you will probably see Jenkins at some point. One of the really good things about with Jenkins um, compared to some of the others is that with Jenkins. There's a plugin architecture and it's almost got the um, idea of if you can do it within Jenkins, you pr- you're well probably able to. However, the problem I found with that is you can probably do just about anything with Jenkins, even things you shouldn't, because it's just it's so flexible. There's times where you're just thinking maybe we shouldn't have done that with Jenkins, but because it's been done there, it's it's hard to get people away from it sometimes. It also, it's kind of, um, because it's the CI/CD system, it tends to be um, kind of the center of your 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 infrastructure in a way. Um, so it's, it's doing everything to, to build and deploy and test and everything else. But it's, it, it, in itself, it can be quite insecure. And being the thing that has access to everything, has access to your code and so on, it can be hard to hard to manage sometimes i mean it it it's not um as kind of modular and or at least in the past it wasn't as the rest of your infrastructure so like you know your your ec2 instances um for example um it's just a box that sits there and you have it has you have to make sure it, it, it continues to sit there and, and continues to work and continues to be secure. And that's not always easy with Jenkins. Yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to compare it to the GitLab stuff again because it's one I've got the most um, experience with. But one of the things I found with GitLab is 
their CI solution, it's very simple. Everything is written in um, YAML, whereas Jenkins, we've not mentioned it yet, but uses something called Groovy, which is a, as far as I'm aware, a subset of Java. So, you know, if you come from a Java background, you'll recognize a few things in it. Otherwise, it's, you know, it, it's just the, you know, Groovy or, you know, for most people, Jenkins is the only place they'll use Groovy anyway. Um, but yeah, as I say, GitLab does everything in YAML, so it can be a bit easier to read. But one of the other things um, I found with GitLab is it's very limited in the integrations that it's got. But in a way, that can be helpful because it limits you from what you can do with it. As I say, you know, as was mentioned earlier, because you can do anything with Jenkins, you can do anything with Jenkins, whether you should or not. What's an example of something you shouldn't do with Jenkins? I mean, where where we were, one of the things that we thought wasn't the best idea was actually using it for continuous deployment um, because Jenkins, you know, one of the one of the things Jenkins is really good at is taking code and integrating it and making an artifact out of it. How it then controls how you deploy that. So, you know, whether you're wanting to do canary builds, whether you're wanting to deploy it to a Kubernetes cluster and that kind of thing, it can do all that. But it's not built to do that. What you're having to do is write custom logic or use plugins that you don't know um, how well they're maintained to control that all for you. Whereas, you know, at, you know, I keep mentioning Kubernetes. It's it's where um, a lot of my attention is at the moment. There's something called Argo CD, um, and there's a few other projects. But that one controls how you deploy to Kubernetes clusters, and it manages the individual resources, and it knows what the resources within Kubernetes are. It knows what to do with a deployment. No, Jenkins doesn't know any of this, so you're having to put the logic in there. Whereas, you know, something as simple as it needs to take all of the commits to this repository um, and it needs to run the tests that are part, that have already been included as part of that code, and then it needs to just build it as part of, you know, whether it's a Docker file, whether it's just, you know, simply compiling it and putting it out to an artifact repository. It's very, very good at doing that. Managing the deployment, you essentially have to build the de- how to deploy it yourself, and it's one of the it's one of the things I found with Jenkins. It's I would personally steer clear from trying to use Jenkins to deploy everything. It's great mm. at making things, deploying things. You're essentially going right. How would I do this myself? Right now, stick that in, um, uh, you know, a shell section of a Jenkins file because you haven't to install all the CLIs yourself to manage it or that kind of thing. That's exactly how it's how it's used um, where where I am at the moment in the projects I'm working on. Uh, Jenkins does the building, and then it's uh, it actually it runs an Argo CD command line um, in order to get the deployment done and kind of hands it off at that point. So I was going to say, what do you use to deploy it then? How do you then deploy your code? You just get it to another another kind of scheduling task? It entirely depends. I mean, if uh, one of the things, and it's again mentioned in Argo CD, for Argo CD itself has the ability to check whether a repository is up to date or check whether an artifact is updated and then say, right, if this is updated, I now now know that I need to go and deploy this. It doesn't care what Jenkins did before that. What was that again? Sorry, um, what was that again? So, uh, it's called Argo CD, and that's it's specifically for Kubernetes. Okay. But th- there's there's other applications that will do that. They will scan a repository and see whether there's changes to it. Or, you know, you could have something, um, a popular artifact um, repository is Artifactory, and that has the ability to say a version has updated. I can now send a webhook 
uh, well, a, a webhook request to um, something else to tell it I have a new version, and then that can then take over. Right? How do I then deploy this? And it's you know it's the whole splitting it out into what does each thing best. And it's as I say, Jenkins to be able to do all of that. You have to essentially code that yourself, or take as I say, take plugins that other people have written. And I'm not going to say the plugins are bad. Some of them are really, really good. The Git, the Git plugins um, that have been made for Jenkins are, you know, they're brilliant. They have every feature you could want under the sun. But there's some of the other ones they've not been updated in about five, six years, and you're wondering, you know, does it still work? Does it still do what we want it to? And because there's that many of them, it's it's you know, you're looking for a sea of plugins to find whether it's the one you want. Whereas as I say, if you know you've got a continuous deployment application that does it for you, already knows what resources it's trying to deploy, that's probably where you need to go with it. Yeah, in my personal opinion, I mean what I've experienced in the past. It's the usual issue with plugins as well that you you've got the the core thing which is somewhat audited and and a known quantity and all this arbitrary code that other people have written to plug into it, it which may or may not have vulnerabilities and so on. Uh, and the one thing I've found recently when trying to replicate our Jenkins environment where I am just to, you know, I was doing some testing with it because I found an issue when um, trying to bring Git submodules and that's not really important to this, but it's there, there was just something where it didn't work as I was expecting. So I tried to replicate that on my own environment. But because there was that many plugins, it said, right, this plugin requires this de- this version of dependency. So I'd, I'd update the version of that dependency. So right now, this plugin needs this version of the dependency. And you're there for, you know, 120 plugins and every single one of them needs a version bump. And then the moment you do one of them, it requires another one. And you know, I, I was there for a good two hours just thinking, I can't get this stood up. It's just, it. you know, I'm, I'm just going to do something else. So, yeah, it's because of, you know, the amount of dependencies you have on um, other plugins, it can take ages to get there. Now, one thing I'm going to say is it sounds like I'm being very disparaging to Jenkins in this. I think Jenkins is brilliant at continuous integration. What it does, it does absolutely fantastically. And the fact that it's available as an open source project that people can contribute to is wonderful. But I think there's a there's almost been an acceptance within the industry that you just use it for everything because it's the free one or it's the one everyone uses. And you now for me personally, I think using it for everything when there's other things that can do the job for the specific infrastructure more how do how do you say it but well better in something that knows what it's um dealing with it knows the infrastructure it's talking to and therefore knows the conditions it needs to meet rather than you trying to make that yourself i think there's better ways of using jenkins so is there like a web gui for an end to it kind of thing so you can see when what things are happening and stuff Yes, Jenkins, for the most part, you're interacting a lot with the web UI, especially when you're um, creating the pipelines. You can, you know, do everything from um, outside of that, but for most people, they will know it through the UI. Um, And yeah, when you see the UI, they've done something called Blue Ocean, which is a newer UI update. But yeah, the main UI, which most people still use, it definitely looks like something out of the mid 2000s, put it that way. But yeah, as I say, very powerful. But um, yes, what's kind of scripting languages are you kind of doing inside when it's running? Groovy, which uh, is is Java like, uh, or it's used with Java a lot. Um, and the, so you'll put um, 
you put a file called a Jenkins file with your code um, and point Jenkins to that, and then that will have information about how to how, how the how Jenkins will operate, how the build will work. Um, so you can have different stages, and you can you can use sort of language features like data structures and loops and things like that within it as well if you want to. But it's it's obviously best to keep it keep it simple. Cool. So what kind of like I was talking about earlier .dot net or whatever, and it's obviously compiled like uh, C sharp and stuff. So what kind of things would you in the Linuxy kind of world do you kind of get, which you kind of get the source code and then you can kind of compile it? I, I suppose the pot, one point to uh, make here is the Je- the Jenkins side. It's the actual the bit that controls Jenkins itself. That's the bit that's written in Groovy. The Jenkins boxes themselves, they're essentially just Linux boxes. So you can install anything you want on there and Jenkins can call out to the CLIs and build. It can build Docker images. It can build, you know, Go, Python, Node, what, whatever you want at that point. It's got the ability to do anything that's on the box that it's running on or um, it's got the concept of agents where you've got a um, central Jenkins server which tells the agents what to build from these Jenkins files. And yeah, let's say the Jenkins files, they're written in Groovy, which is a Java subset, but effectively it can build just about anything. It can even, you know, you can have Windows agents as well on it. You can, you know, you can probably run, you know, something like BOS or Solaris or something. I don't know. I've never tried it, but I'm sure it's probably possible, at which point, you know, you can build just about anything with it. So yeah, going back to that uh, kind of thing where you're saying, you know, we can talk about a bit about scripting. I've done quite a bit, a lot of scripting lately, weird kind of uh, PowerShell scripting, because that's what these Windows boxes, I mean, it's just, it's, I'm kind of getting into coding again. I don't know why. I'm, I think, uh, John, you might be kind of like, kind of going in getting into the same thing again is that if you've got it to scratch as i was like saying if, if you've got to do more than once you kind of you might as well automate it and the problem i've had is that i've never really come from a i never went to uni or anything so it's just kind of learning it as i go along and i think it's just it, 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 it's a, it, for me learning i mean thanks for the um the tips again Stu, is that i've been running learning um, Python. Can I can I just quickly can I just wind back one stuff back yeah. just for a second? You mentioned before about you, you didn't go to university. You just kind of picked this stuff up as you went yeah. along. I did go to university and completely failed at it, and I'm still <laughs> yeah. doing all right in IT. <laughs> yeah. um, so I just want to kind of reassure if, any, if there's anyone that's listening to this podcast that that is thinking, oh my god, the only way I'm ever going to get a job in IT is to go to university. That is absolutely not the case. But did you go to? university to learn to does as a computer degree didn't you do chemistry or something i went to university to do a computing degree well it wasn't even to do a degree in the end it was to do an hnd because <laughs> i did so badly <laughs> um but what i would say is that largely what you're learning when you go to university for computing is you're learning about how computers work internally you're not really learning about coding um, the point at which you do start learning about coding, typically you're learning about a learning language. So like, for example, we did stuff about this thing called Modular 2, which is a really, really old, I mean, to be fair, I'm really, really old now, which I hate <laughs> to mention. But, but when we were learning it, Modular 2 was a very old programming language that was literally just designed as a learning language. Weirdly, if you, if you go to university now and do a science degree, you might well end up learning Python. Yeah. <laughs> mm. 
the, the, the programming stuff, you, you might do things like university people tend to learn about things like how to write algorithms for pr- sort of general computing processes in such a way that they are more optimized for, you know, specific hardware utilizations, or, you know, you might say, you know, um, you might, you'll often see something like the big O notation for stuff. And it's the number of operations it takes to perform a particular activity. So you might learn how to do that sort of tracking, but it's not, it's not like, you know, here is Python, go and write an application in Python. Yeah, I think what I have problem finding is it's not even learning the basics like arrays and loops and um, and yeah, if and that statement kind of thing. And and I'm guessing it's just that I just get worried that if someone reads my code, they go, well, "Why would you look like this?" kind of thing. But I've kind of got I've kind of got to the stage. Well, because I work in a, in such a thing with like where we're, people are writing .NET code, I just feel like someone's going to say. But then I'm just going to say, "Well, I I think it might have been even one of those." those interviews I was reading earlier says well you can only write the code do you know how to really kind of thing you, you can mm-hmm. only write and that's why I think it's quite good to kind of get, kind of get a mentor I think to kind of work it so you can go to and I'm, and the good thing like in my team is that I can go we've got some more people who are programming kind of people than uh, than the new infrastructure guys whereas I kind of like know the network inside out and things like an AD I know in like that and then when when, I, when they've got a problem they've come to me about it but then I can go to them and say I've got this problem how would, how would you do this and they go well, you do like, well I didn't know that you could do it like that there's, there's a few there's a few things to unpick from that so you're right you can only write stuff that that you've kind of experienced before. So there's a couple of things that I've had recently that have kind of really reinforced that for me. Um, the first is I went to a handful of job in- job interviews recently. And in one of them, I kind of, one of the very early ones, uh, having not done job interviews for, I'd say tens of years, I kind of said, oh, you know, I, um, I, I can read I can read programming, read code quite, quite easily, but I really struggle on starting stuff from scratch. And that was actually part of the reason why one of these firms that I applied to kind of knocked me back and turned me away. They said, you know, we wanted somebody that would come in and, and could write code straight away. And I kind of thought, well, that's, that's a bit short sighted because I said, you know, I can read this code uh, and I currently write stuff in Ansible and Terraform and stuff like that. And they're not, they're not language. They're not things that are new. You know, then so that the, the, they are quite new concepts and tools. They're not necessarily new programs, but they're new kind of ways of looking at things. And I kind of thought that was a bit short-sighted because they didn't say, "Well, you picked those things up. You could probably pick Python up." But then again, you know, they they wanted somebody that would drop in and would go straight to sixty miles an hour, which fine, whatever. Um, but the other thing that um, I found because of that, I then, like you said, I I went away and I. I found something that would make me learn how to write a program that did a handful of things that I'd not written code that did that before for. So I started writing, I I wrote kind of the initial thing uh, in bash. And in fact, I mentioned that in, in the previous episode about using bats for unit testing. I actually got probably about two thirds of the way through it and suddenly thought, I already know how to write all this stuff in Bash, really. What I could do with doing is learning another language. So I actually went away and, like you said, you, you've, you're kind of looking at Python. Um, I actually went away and started learning Node, uh, Node.js, predominantly because 
like Python, it's very easy to go cross-platform. The other thing about Node is because it's based on JavaScript and JavaScript executes in browsers as well as through the command line, it gave me the opportunity to learn something that would be useful in both web applications and on a server side of things. I think something that Al touched on as well is that there are certain concepts with with scripting or programming. For myself, I'd say uh, data structures like uh, lists uh, or arrays, same same, same thing, dictionaries are also called hashes and key value pairs. Uh, so there's that, and then there's loops, um, a for loop, for instance, a while loop, or an if-then-else statement, which are common to pretty much everything and once you know about those you can spot them in different the different Mm. languages that you come across yeah that's a very good point actually so i started around at the same time i started getting into kind of understanding how operating systems work from a not a particularly in-depth perspective but understanding kind of how to how to make a linux box work the way I wanted it to. Um, I also started doing PHP uh, and PHP was very, when I was doing PHP web development was um, a very common web development tool set. Uh, The most commonly deployed web application is WordPress and that's based on PHP. And you kind of learn, like you mentioned, the loops. Loops are uh, a fundamental building block of anything to do with computing if then else um is kind of you know it's that's your logic if this thing is true then you'll do this thing and if it's not true then you'll do this other thing and in fact typically whenever i sort of show people my ansible stuff it is chock full of if then else's or if else if sort of statements you've mentioned while loops um, you might also see them as for loops or what's the other kind of loop that I'm thinking of until loops. And effectively a for loop is here is a collection of things. I want you to step through each item in that collection of things. Uh, and it's typically a list you've mentioned before. And effectively that's just a chain of items, you know, one after the other. And as your for loop steps through it, it just move. it just copies that value in that list into another variable and then runs a set of commands over it. The while and until loops basically just approach the same problem from two different directions. A while loop says whilst this variable is equal to something or is is matches something, uh, run these functions. Uh, and an until loop basically says run this command and at the end of it, Oh, run this loop rather. And then at the end of it, check and make sure that that value is equal to this other thing. And effectively those, those um, three kinds of loops and the if then else basically drive almost all programming. In fact, one per, well, I, I remember quite a while back, basically people were saying that machine learning and artificial intelligence was basically just an incredibly complicated if statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and to a certain, I think it was even XKCD, to a certain extent, it's true. You know, because computers are binary, they're basically saying, does this thing return a one or a zero? And if it returns a one, then you're going to do something. And if it returns a zero, you're going to do something else. And ultimately, 
once you've kind of got those pieces in your head and and again you know each programming language is different um we've mentioned python mentioned bash mentioned node they're all those ones are all kind of based on a programming language called c and so they're all kind of they're all referred to as a c-based programming language there are other languages that are what they call functional programming which are more like mathematical proofs given a specific set of data you will always get the same result and they will always operate in exactly the same way i love youtube i mean i'm i've been watching loads of kind of different ways of doing learning python and then and and, and i'm guessing it's just it's just that thing again when you're worried that you think someone's gonna come and say oh why didn't you write it this way or, that, or there's a better way of doing it but i, I think i've taught myself now don't worry about it you can only write what you want and then like interesting with the as well this is that i think you have to have projects or little things tasks to kind of yeah. uh, to help you and then obviously watching these different things in youtube you get the recommendations and then there's the coding questions which you get for job interviews and they are all over um youtube and you can start watching them and, and it's really interesting. If you pause it, you can then think how you would do it. And then they like they tell you the way you think you would do it. And then they, they would tell you how someone obviously they like they're talking about they getting job with Google and Facebook, how they want you to think how you mm. make it the most optimal way of writing the code. It's really interesting watching those because then you can kind of think, Oh, I didn't think about doing it that way. They did it another way. I'll pick up on that. There was um, an interview I went to about a year and a half ago now where um, I came up against exactly that. And um, going back to the degree thing, I also don't come from a computer science background. I've got a music tech degree. So, you know, I can probably, you know, tell you how to um, dampen a room for, you know, the bass and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I never learned any algorithms in, in my degree. So, um, but yeah, the one of the interview questions was, I have a certain value. I know it's between a zero and a 100. Tell me what the fastest way of finding out the what X is. So, you know, X equals something. And then I've got these tests that will, you know, say whether it's true or false. And, you know, their test will be sort of, you know, X equals um, 62, something like that. But you've got to find that it's 62 without knowing that in the first place. You've got to find the value of X. And, um, you know, the tradition, you know, a way I would initially have thought of that, you know, without knowing any of the algorithms was just go, you know, is it one? No. Is it two? Um, no. Is it three? No. What they um, introduced me to during the interview was this something called a binary tree. And what you're doing there is you're splitting the difference. You're going in the middle and going, right, I am now at 50. Is the value less or more than this? Yeah. And then going, yeah. right, okay, so, right, I now know the value is more than this or it's less. And it's it was that way, you know, all of a sudden I just went, oh, I really don't know what I'm doing when it comes to this. You know, I'm, you know I've done a lot of scripting, but, you know, actually the al algorithm side, you know, I've started to pick up on it a little bit in the past year or so. But, yeah, before that it was just, the, you know, again, it's... It's not magic, but you know, you know, anything that's you know, it, it it does feel different when you know you're just used to you know. My scripting approach was almost always what would I do, but put it in a file. Whereas you know, the the idea is what's the most optimized way of doing it. And I just never knew the most optimized way. So yeah, that interview didn't go spectacularly well. Put it that way. Weirdly, the that 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 sort of higher and lower thing, uh, I actually play that with my kids. And get and and typically it always kind of goes fifty. No, 
Is it higher or lower than 50? It's seven, it's higher, right? Okay. Is it 75? No, it's lower than 75. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's just because, and, and again, I, I didn't learn that at university. That wasn't something I learned. Yeah. It's just kind of the way that I would approach doing something like that. I, I got to the, the divide and conquer algorithm in, in a job interview as well. So, so that's, um, what they said was you've got a, a server and it's got a, say, 100 RAM sticks and, uh, there's a, there's a RAM error. How, how do you, what's the most efficient way of finding the dodgy RAM stick? And I said, well, you take half of them out, put them to one side, see if it fails or not. Uh, if, if it does fail, then you know the dodgy RAM stick is, is within that 50 that's still in the server and so on from there. So. And I, that was kind of thinking mm-hmm. on my feet, basically, within a, in an interview. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I suppose one thing, you know, we, we've mentioned Python as, um, you know, a language to potentially start with. Um, and there's a reason behind that is Python is, one, very prevalent to most Linux boxes, um, especially, you know, Ubuntu, Debian, Tentacle with Python by default. And um, one of the other things is it's very, very easy to get into for the simple fact that it almost reads like how... that There's almost an ongoing joke that if someone wrote pseudocode um, down of what something should look like, it would look almost exactly like Python. And there's been times where I've written something out and just gone, yeah, that is basically Python um, when you're writing something out. Now, my journey from there led me eventually onto Golang, and the reason I went there is, you know, I'm doing a lot more with the cloud recently and a lot of the projects use Go. Now, one of the big differences you'll notice when coming from, you know, Python, Bash, um, if you use Ruby as another um, example, one of the things that I found with Golang very, very difficult to begin with is something called types. And that is rather than just with Python, you can do, you know, say X equals, and then it can be anything, you know, it can be a string, which is, you know, whether it's a word or whether it's an integer, whether it's, you know, um, a flow, which is, you know, a number dot something or, you know, them kinds of things in Python until you actually run the code. You don't, you don't have to care about that. And sometimes you can actually put that in and, you know, do something wrong, but Python doesn't stop you. You can add a string to a string, even if you're trying to return a um, sum of two um, numbers kind of thing. It is potentially possible to do that in Python and just go, well, I've added one to two and it's given me 12 because it's added the strings together, literally, rather than adding one plus two. One of the things with Golang is they have, um, they, rest- they say that this has a specific type. So if you're saying this, um, x equals five, that automatically becomes an integer. And if you have a function that only accepts an integer, if you try and supply a string to that, you can't even compile the code in the first place to run it. And that initially, when I started Golang was, horrible to be honest because i've just not dealt with anything like that before however because of now doing more and more golang it's made my python code better because i now understand a lot more because golang's it's not you know as low level as something like c but at the same time it's starting to expose some of the things that you don't normally see in a very high level language like python and that kind of thing and yeah when we're talking about the whole um, idea of cross-platform one of the really nice things about golang is when you compile it you get a 
uh, binary file out of it. You don't have to install the Python dependencies. You just get a binary that you run and all you've got to do, you know, if you're on a Linux box, you type dot slash and the name of the binary and it runs. You don't have to have Golang installed on there. And things like that have made it so I've just gone, you know what, I have to learn this. I have to use this. And I've been doing a lot, lot with it recently, as I say. If, you know, you get to a point with Python where you're very comfortable with it, for me, the best step next was to go into Golang because it taught me some of the things that I'd, not bad habits, but things that I'd never really had to think of with Python because, you know, let's say no type system, no restrictions and, um, you know, doing something at such a high level that you almost don't have to think about what it's doing in the background, whereas Golang, you get a bit more down to what you have to do and what you have to think of. And as I say, it makes your code a bit better in other languages I've found as well. So just to quickly touch on the the the, the fact that Python doesn't have a typing system. Actually, technically it does. Yeah. Um, what they call is they call it duck typing. Uh, and the reason why they call it duck typing is because if it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, then it's probably a duck. <laughs> And PHP used to do duck typing as well. I say used to. It, 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 it By default, it still does duck typing. What Facebook found, so Facebook famously is also, or was also all written in PHP. And about, it's probably about 12 years ago now, PHP 5 was coming towards the end of kind of that development cycle. And they were looking at the next version of Python. Uh, sorry, PHP rather. And Facebook, because they'd written so much of their application, they couldn't move away from PHP without causing a whole load of problems. So what they actually did was they went to, they went away and they wrote a typed version of PHP, which they called Hack. Uh, and Hack was introduced as an alternative to the, the upcoming version of PHP, which is going to be called PHP 7. And what they proved was that the typed version of PHP called Hack, or HHVM, sorry. Yeah, sorry, HHVM was the interpreter. Hack basically um, was what Facebook wrote, mo was what they targeted most of their PHP stuff at to find all of the typing errors that they had in their code because of the fact that PHP didn't have this type that they also were doing duck typing. Um, and so when PHP 7 finally was kind of codified, they made it so that the, 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 the duck typing that was in there could be overridden by specifying types exactly for the same reason. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to mention was that there is actually a really good YouTube video uh, about how JavaScript handles, handles its duck typing, and it's called WAT or WAT. And effectively, each time, each time you search for the, so each time he kind of shows a random effect of two mismatched types being added together, the response is what? Because, for example, if you add a list and a list together, the result is an empty string. If you add a list and a dictionary together, you get object object. To which the answer is. What? <laughs> so just to get back to if people can just so I'll get my head, we're talking about when you're inside a programming language, when you're writing your code, is that if you have a variable, which is like whatever you want to call it, it can be like a number or it can be free text or whatever. That's what yeah. you're talking about 
talking about is with a lot of languages with like um it says with python it does it kind of like just does the best guessing and then as you're saying when you go to go it says you have to if you're saying that you want to put an integer which is a number isn't it which is which hasn't got a decimal point yes after it. that's correct yeah yeah, so if you put it into a mathematical equation, it might not work. Yeah, you can like say if you had hello as your thing, you say want to say hello times hello. You can't because it's not a, it's not an integer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and um, I suppose one point to mention is Python recently has got something called type hints, where it can be used to say this type should be a string, and I think there's a way of enforcing it so that if something isn't supplied as a string, um, it won't work. But I've not I've not done a lot with that recently. It's been a while. Because it, it it was when I was watching one of these videos, I was like about these these coding questions. Like if you put, because like to me, if you put like you had like an array of numbers, so like a list of numbers, and it, if you're working in PowerShell, that that would be like a number, and you and then you want to. But it was basically it was I wanted to leave each of the numbers to look at a query, and in the Python language, it basically thought, "Hang on a minute, you're, you're, what what you're trying to do? You want to look at look at each of it, not each of the number." Yeah. One fun thing that you can do with Python because of the fact that it does this duck typing, if you've got a number and you treat it as a string, it will render it as a string. If you have a number and you treat it like an array or a list. It will actually split the split split that number into each digit. Yeah, and that's what that's what. Yeah, that's obviously what I didn't realise it was doing. I'd- I suppose one thing to mention, going back to the GoLang thing again, it is possible to supply something that doesn't have a type to it um, using something called an interface. But they are they're more or less used for times that you can go. I don't know what type I'm going to expect from this because, you know, either it's, you know, something you're not dealt with, you know, it could be a SQL query and you don't know what the response is going to be. But for most of it, everything is going to be a specific type. Um, so you say, you know, as, as I say, you know, you supply hello to a mathematical function that, as I say, the difference between Python and Go at this point is Go will not run. Go will not compile. Python will run and then error. So depending on what, sometimes it might not error depending on the function you've done. So there's times where, you know, you could be actually causing a problem because the result is not what expected because you was expecting two numbers to get added together and actually it's two strings that have been added together or, you know, something way more complex than that. Yeah, because with, with, with the PowerShell, you can basically, you can run a command and when you when you kind of set that, it, you can query that variable and you can you can define and tell it if it's an integer yeah if it's a string yeah it's all interesting stuff and it's very exciting to do it's just having it's just having a problem to solve isn't it yeah now and um yeah i suppose one thing if you are getting started on all these things is you know if you're using visual studio code it comes with a lot of the um syntax highlighting and yeah. the function stuff I've been, yeah, I do a lot in Vim and there's ways of doing it with that. There's uh, one called coc.nvim, which I've been doing a lot with that. And that does auto completion syntax highlighting the problems that I've, because I, I've historically done most things in Vim and not in Visual Studio Code or similar. I've always kind of been writing stuff that I'm going, well, I think it's like this or having to, you know, stack overflow every couple of minutes. 
why I didn't do it sooner, having the syntax highlighting auto completion, it's made things so much easier. So if anyone's trying to struggling along or, you know, wondering how do I write these things, sometimes you can almost, you know, start going right, start typing something, it'll suggest something, go, ah, that's what I was looking for, rather than having to go off and Google it sometimes. So that's definitely something I'd recommend for people who aren't already doing it. One thing before I will ask Jerry something is with this whole kind of the JavaScript, Joe, Node.js, React, what is the point of having them doing, because a lot of them are th- you're doing your server-side stuff back on your client again, aren't you? Why is why are people going like that more than not having, like with PHP and .NET, where you're running your code on the server side of things? I'm not much of a JavaScript person, um, although... From the fr- the work I've done with front end stuff recently, there is a notion of client side rendering and server side rendering with JavaScript or with Node.js. Client side rendering, you can you can basically you write the stuff in in the Node.js framework, and you probably while testing you're running it on a Node.js server. But then at the build stage, it produces a load of um, flat files, which you just you purely run with a web server, usually Nginx, because it's nice and lightweight and simple. So, for instance, the the builds that we we use for the front end, um, we took the Node.js code uh, and then produced the, the, some flat files. And the way we run it is you build you you put the flat files on a, in, into a container with Nginx, and that runs the code and and serves serves the front end. So that's my take on it anyway. I suppose one of the things with having the client side versus server side, and weirdly this comes up from listening to, I think it's most recent Bad Voltage episode, and one of the things they made a point of was anything that you do client side, if um, uh, it was in relation to something that's happening on the iPhones at the moment, but they said, you know, client side means you have the power of every iPhone that is now using that um, application to be able to render that. You don't have to have the... um, you don't have to render that on the servers, at which point it's taking the load off at that side. However, there's certain things that you just can't do in a browser, or at least not do it securely or, you know, access to your internal applications, at which point that's when you use things like APIs to expose something that the front end can talk to. Um, but then that's, yeah, that's the separation between, you know, something rendering client side and server side is server side is realistically what needs to stay on the server or, you know, he's just better being rendered there or better being created there. Whereas client side, you know, if you had to, you know, work up all the compute power for every single request that comes to your website, for every single bit of function, someone's, you know, someone's move move their mouse and you've got to um, render that on your server, that's a lot harder than someone's made an API request and we need to return the database query. So, you know, it's, it, you know, it, it's just a di- different sides of things. One thing that I've found with with um, with that sort of thing is that if you've got client side JavaScript, you have to treat it as untrusted because anyone can run anything in JavaScript. If you hit, I think it's F11 in most browsers, it will open up the JavaScript console, and you can run anything you like in that console. Um, in fact, to the extent that I think if you go to some, some of the Facebook, it's something like Facebook, and open up the JavaScript console it will actually tell you that this is not somewhere that most normal people are supposed to go to. (laughs) And if you then try and paste something into that window, it will tell you 
you can't paste into this window unless you type in something like, I am aware this is a security risk or something like something along those lines. Because of the fact people were advising other people that the way you fix a thing in Facebook is to run this big blob of code. And people were then putting security, you know, security workarounds into there to try and stop, you know, try and open up the account to do stuff that it shouldn't do. The other thing as well is, and, and this was what was one of the things, one of the other things that Stuart mentioned in this is that if you are rendering stuff on a phone, it's using more battery or, or on a laptop or anything in JavaScript, it's using battery on that device or it's using power on that device, which means it's not using it for something else. So that means that in theory, you, you could reduce the, the operating efficiency of a div, of, of your client's devices. If you, if you're getting them to run everything in client side JavaScript. And in fact, if you look at something like Slack, for example, which uses Electron to render it, it is this ginormous blob of memory and CPU <laughs> utilization yep. effectively because it's, it's all rendered locally on the client side. And then they only send effectively the database updates over the wire. The other thing as well, if you're, if you're relying on client side JavaScript is, and, and, and it weirdly, it's actually Stuart language. Um, it's a post of his that brought it up. And this is from ages ago, which is, um, about how broken websites can become if they lose data connectivity. So for example, if your website relies on this giant blob of JavaScript, and the JavaScript cuts out, you know, you, you go through a, a train tunnel or, um, your, um, you, you move from one cell to the next on your mobile network or on your mesh net on your mesh VPN network. And that connection drops. If it's just the web page, you just refresh the web page, but you won't necessarily recognize that your JavaScript's dropped. So you might lose all the formatting on your web page, or you might lose the bit of functionality that allows you to press the button to submit data. And so you really need to think about how you're engineering your web pages if you're doing that. I know this is nowhere near what we, what, where we started with this conversation, but <laughs> I just, you, you, you made the mistakes to have, uh, bringing up that bad voltage episode, which was a particularly good one, I should yes. add. Um, is that quite a new one or not? Is that the latest one or not? I, th- I think it came out today or yesterday. Okay. Yeah. That's one next one to listen to. I did like act. He's the first person I went to see at Odd Camp and was like amazed by that. His, I can't remember what it was about, but it's like, wow. Guy knows his stuff and he's also really funny on Bad Voltage as well. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, as, as I say, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, client side, keep it minimal. But at the same time, there's some things that, you know, you, you're almost farming out the compute for things that can be done there. But, mm-hmm. you know, as John says, at the same time, having the, yeah, doing doing server side what is more secure, better at that point yeah and that's why i wanted that that's kind of answered my question of why they why you're starting to do things because mm. yeah because i was because we were at work we were like doing oh. this thing is it calls have you come out of this cross cross origin resource sharing yes where where you can limit your apis and everything which is one of the things i've been doing with the one of the one of these things where it, it, it literally just had a uh, an asterisk on a star so you could basically access any url quite a while ago now there was a, a whole thing about, you know how people talk about self-hosted applications. There was a movement, uh, again, maybe five or six years ago now, called unhosted applications, which were at, which were effectively a JavaScript application you'd run on your on your local machine. 
uh, and it would talk to a standardized data storage service, effectively using cores to permit you being able to write to something like a next cloud blob storage service. Oh, interesting. Now it all kind of died a death because there was a, it, it got codified into what they call the remote storage API in web browsers. But yes, cause is a, I, I have, I have strong memories of cause breaking all sorts of that unhosted stuff. Again, it's one of those things where I had to learn again when like someone said, we, why, what, what cause setting to be putting on this? I, went, I don't know. What's cause? <laughs> I, I had to go and watch a couple of YouTube videos to kind of work out. Um, yeah. Jerry, you asked about scripting. Do you want to talk about DSLs? We haven't mentioned those. Domain specific languages. So this is the main, I, I don't really know any general purpose programming languages other than if Bash falls into that category then maybe I know one but um, (laughs) the the languages that I've mainly learned are the ones that uh, I'm using to build infrastructure and manage infrastructure those mainly being uh, Terraform and uh, you can debate whether Ansible is a language but Ansible (laughs) so I mean Ansible taught me a lot of this stuff that we've just been talking about. So data structures and loops, for instance, um, was something I learned and, and actually variables as well. Um, I didn't really have a good grasp of that before I started doing, doing things with Ansible. It's a language that is, is, uh, as Stu, Stu said earlier off, uh, off mic, I think, um, it, it's something that has the, the, these features that we talked about of, of a programming language, but isn't actually a pro- programming language in itself. Um, I mean, Terraform is the, the thing that I'm using at the moment that, that most falls into that category. It's one of them things where, you know, for, you know, for Terraform, they use HCL, which is HashiCorp um, configuration language. And they decided that the best mixture of taking, um, you know, I, th- I think they said it came from coming from pure JSON, which um, Packer was originally, which is one of their tools, but then eventually added the ability to use H- um, HCL versus um, Vagrant, which um, uses Ruby, if I recall correctly. They were trying mm-hmm. to get almost like a best of both worlds of completely machine readable, but at the same time also um, readable by humans. And they thought the only way we can do this in the way we exactly want to do it is to create our own language from it. And if you look at, um, they've got a repository of HCL, and it is based on another, I can't remember the name of it, I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But they've taken the idea of it and just gone, yes, there's concepts in here that you will see if you come from a development background, but it's not to the point that you have to be a developer or, you know, have that development background to get a start in it. So, you know, creating a resource for AWS or Azure, you don't have to know what a for loop is to create a virtual machine or a database within Azure AWS. However, if you then want to do things that are more dynamic, so say I want one per region, I want so many nodes created based upon, um, you know, goes into an auto scaling group. I want so many base, uh, you know, I want certain CPU based upon which environment we're in. So you could say my staging environment, I only want 
a lower power instance whereas in the production i want it higher because there's higher traffic loads and that's when you start introducing variables you start introducing loops and things like that and it means that you don't have to straight away get into how do i know how to program or how to how to script it's i can do this and then if i do need to get more complex i can and um, that's one of the things that came out of um as i say using a dsl in some cases it can it's an abstraction. There is an, a language behind it in um, Terraform, for example. It is Golang in the background. But in front of that, it makes it so that you don't have to learn what's going on behind just enough to get by. And it's the same with things like Puppets, another example. It is based upon Ruby for the most part, but it also has its own ways of um, describing things, ways of managing things, and it's its own language in a sense. So it means that, again, you can describe something without necessarily learning a full-bred language for it, but it does give you the options of extending it if you need to. Yeah, variables are cool, definitely. Mm. I, want, I, I, I wrote that in my notes. I mean, as you say, doing different environments and just changing the variable, I mean especially with me we kind of put time into when we do our projects so in the development stage that's when you kind of you spend most of your time because time when you get into staging or testing you're kind of getting to know the code well and then when you're getting to production you can literally like you can get you can deploy it in like 10-15 minutes and you because you know all that you've you've you already made all your mistakes in the learning yes. environment yeah and it, it, it's one of the beauties of you know getting into this this sort of sector of the industry Yes, having a development background can help you sometimes, but at the same time, if you come from a primarily development background, you may not know the infrastructure side. I came from an infrastructure side, but you know, having an interest in programming languages over time and just getting, you know, as time's gone on and more I've gotten into this sector of, you know, more cloud, more DevOps, more SRE as I am now, I've got more and more into the programming side, but it wasn't always the case. And it does mean that, yeah, as, as we we're talking about earlier, you know, someone has a networking issue, uh, you know, I did it for 10 years, so I can jump into that one. Whereas someone else, you know, they've been uh, building Ruby or uh, Python for however many years, I can just go, right, how is it I do this? And they just go, right, you do it like that. There you go, done. And, you know, it's, uh, again, um, for, for the people listening, don't be scared off from these kind of jobs just because you don't have a development background. Just because it says dev in the DevOps t- titles or, you know, the departments, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to come from a development background. Some jobs want that, but, you know, often it's it's the team that has to have the development, not just, you know, each individual in it. Otherwise, you're not bringing skills together. You're just bringing lots of people of a very similar background rather than very different backgrounds and making them, you know, the, the best that you can get from everyone at that point. I think maybe a difference between being an admin 10, 10 15 years ago and being an admin now is that you, you should be prepared to learn some programming Yes. Whereas you might have been able to get away with it in the past, I don't. I, th- I think it's probably more of a necessity now. Yeah, e- even in the networking side, which I don't, I'm not as big into now. I'm de- as I say, I'm more on the SRE side. But the networking side has changed dramatically even since I've left it. Which is that you know, ten ten years ago, you know, even five years ago, you logged into a switch, you logged into a router, you configured that switch, that router. Whereas now it's more, you know, you configure it with Ansible, you configure it with Nornia or what, whatever the uh, Python um, ones are to do it with now. And you, you configure things like that and you make your 
networking almost as what's the word almost like the you know it's the cattle versus pets kind of thing again you treat the network like cattle not just you know these individual handcrafted configurations you try and make all of the infrastructure as disposable as possible you know obviously with networking you know if someone takes out the core route you're going to have problems but if the configuration is defined centrally it does mean that the moment you replace that you're not going well i need i need to boot that one up and get the config off it it's actually in git you just run your scripts when the new one comes up and all of a sudden you've got your core router back because you've got a brand new one in place and yeah it, as i say the networking industry when i was in it was very slow to change and even now that's very much che- that's you know changed immeasurably in the past couple of years and more so than than the entire time I was in it. So I think I think we've uh, we've gone slightly longer than usual in this episode. Uh, it's a it's been a very good, really good, really interesting episode though. So uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed making it. As per usual, I'd like to thank uh, Dave Lee who does our audio production. He's also part of the Other Side podcast network, which we are as well. Uh, and so you might want to have a look at otherside.network to see some more details about that group. I'd like to thank our Patreons who keep us on the airwaves, uh, the virtual airwaves. Uh, and they are Andamo, Andy, Dave, Maha, Mike, Stu, Stuart, and Yannick. Thanks, guys. And um, just a couple of other things to mention. If there's any feedback about this episode, any other episodes we've done, whether you want us to answer um, any other questions or whether, you know, you just want to tell us we've said everything wrong, then send it to mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk. And um, we also have a Telegram group, which has got quite a few people in. Uh, and it's, it's worth joining. And if you go to our website at adminadminpodcast.co.uk, the link is there or in our show notes. Cool. And if you've got any questions, you want to answer, contact us by email or in our Telegram group. And we will try to answer them in the next show. So, yeah, for that, thanks everyone for listening. And um, we will speak to you all soon. Speak to you again soon. Bye bye. Bye. been listening to a member of the other side podcast network find more about our shows at otherside.network <laughs>